Cinematologist Podcast, episode 142, Hannah Strong. In this episode, Neil talks to writer Hannah Strong about her new book on Sofia Coppola, Sofia Coppola, Forever Young, recently published by Abrams Books. The conversation covers Coppola's career, her signature styles, the Coppola shot, and Hannah's very personal relationship to those films and what they've meant to her over the years. Elsewhere in the episode, Neil and Dario talk about what are perceived as Coppola's limitations and ask questions about what we demand of filmmakers, what we expect of filmmakers, and what we hope filmmakers expect from themselves, particularly those fortunate enough to have a long career. On with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares, and down the line, of course, is my good friend Neil Fox. Neil, how are you doing, my friend? I'm very well, thank you. It's, uh, yeah, the marking's done, so that's good. Um, and I was on set this week for a short film that I'm executive producing. Lovely. Can you say anything about it? Or is- yeah, I can, I can. It's called The Bird Watcher. It's the new film from Ryan McFall, who directed Backwards, which I ah. wrote. Um, this time I'm just execing, and I was on set in a hazmat suit all day um living the dream which was pretty sweaty <laughs> yeah so um but it was nice it was bailey's home day um 12 years since i brought him home from the rescue center and he was on set all day so we had a lovely time just hanging out and um, right. being on set was nice and the film looks like it's going to be really good so very exciting um what about you i'm excellent in fact that's great yeah it's funny I was, I was thinking about this the other the other day the um the caveat of you always feel like you've got a put a caveat on the fact that you are in a particularly good place at a moment in time you know especially i was just reading the guardian that guardian piece the other day about you know climate change and it's all over basically um you know and everything else that's going on in the world but it but you know i i, I was sort of in bed with this back strain for the last two weeks mm. and the euphoria of that dissipating it's just really weird it's almost like a you know you've taken a drug just because the pack the fact that the pain has gone away and you're moving around again um and then, you know, I'm in the middle of marking, but the marking load is light. So it's factored into my, what I call my summer schedule now, which is getting up very early in the morning and working as much as I can until about early afternoon. So I can get the day's work done and then kind of chill out for the rest of the time. So, and, and what happens with that is I find that the headspace allows you to think about more things and you know I just have a lot of ideas about things I want to do but the problem with that is I've got so many projects on the go that need completing <laughs> it's almost kind of like yeah. overwhelming yourself don't take anything more <laughs> on you know yeah absolutely um I don't think I, I don't think I would be popular if I took any more on um but it's nice to hear yeah I'm glad that you're on the on the mend from uh, yeah your your back pain yeah for sure so um we've got a really great interview coming up neil so this is uh yeah one that you that you did and a subject that we're on 
you know, unusually. Pro- I don't know whether this is the first time we're revisiting a filmmaker. It, it probably is, isn't it? But a, an in, a really good excuse to go back to to a filmmaker we have covered in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what kind of piqued my interest, really, was that I saw that Hannah Strong, who's one of the uh, editors at Little White Lies, had written a book on Sophia Coppola called Forever Young. And uh, yeah, just, you know, Hannah's been on the podcast before on, on a bonus episode um, when she visited Falmouth back in, I think, 2019. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was a good chance to get her back on. And also, yeah, just to to think well actually that Sophia Coppola has had a couple of films out since we last um since we last sort of covered her for when we had Melody um Bridges on um, for her book on, on on Coppola um and also I did and we talk about this in the interview I think that I don't know it just feels like she shifted into a different space as a filmmaker from sort of the mid 2010s you know um she seems in a different sphere in terms of how she's regarded and how people talk about it which is what I what I really wanted to talk to Hannah about was was that trajectory of her career so yeah it was it was fun um and yeah I think it's a, I think it's a good chat I think Hannah was really interesting in terms of the way she sort of came at writing this book yeah and uh yeah the the, the book sounds really interesting I know you've read it I haven't read it yet but um I think what it it, it shows is a sort of accessible depth I think is you know what I mean that's what it sounds like you know from from what your description of it was and the way that you 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 talked about it and that sense of giving a, a, a filmmaker somebody who is as you talk about kind of still maybe dismissed or just pigeonholed really easily as you know daughter of and yeah. and therefore you know it doesn't have that kind of seriousness applied to 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 the work and 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 also because of the subject matter a lot of the time but yeah you know i think that we're definitely not going to do that and obviously hannah hasn't done that no that's the that was the intention i think we think we got that but now i think what's interesting about the book is it is a lavish pictorial book for the most part you know it's very visually driven um so you really get a sense of her you know of her visual eye which i think is is is, is really strong and we'll, we'll probably talk about that on the bonus as well you know she's she's good with images um and i like i think the way hannah constructed the book was really interesting in terms of drawing out some of the some of the things that are really unique about her work in a way that probably gets overlooked uh, in the main conversation about her so yeah it was it was a good it was good fun great and uh, before we get into that though there was a, a film that you been released on is it is it dvd or blu-ray it's a blu-ray yeah it's okay. the it's the it's a, a 2k transfer uh re re um remastering remastering yeah it's a 2k restoration of carl theodore dreyer's vampire um from Ooh. the early 1930s and it's a film i saw i think i first watched this probably about 10 years ago when i, when I did like a 31 days of horror thing um but it was really interesting to revisit it it looks amazing um and it, again kind of interesting thinking in terms of the sort of visually led filmmaking you know and i think it's such a remarkable piece of work for for 1931 the 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 way he moves the camera around is just astonishing you know um particularly because the kind of the common narrative is that early sound was so restrictive in terms of what yeah. the cameras could do and he's just like nah we can we can do all sorts and there's clearly there's a there's a couple of moments where you can see that scorsese's lifted for taxi driver in terms of sets and moving cameras <laughs> yeah. above sets and stuff and just create this really sort of otherworldly sense of space um and it's just great you know it's a it's a really it's a really beautiful film it's clearly an influence on sort of folk horror and gothic cinema but what was really 
kind of amazing this time was thinking about how it's a story about the lure of the past you know we live in this kind of age of nostalgia and this kind of idea that things are always better in the past and this is a story about a man who's kind of he gets interested in the past and it's the past that kind of threatens to destroy him um because uh, he just kind of becomes obsessed with it um and and the idea of it and it's just it's just great um it looks really beautiful it's a masters of cinema release um sure yeah and again just again the idea that oh, I sort of brought this up with hannah but you know when did films generally stop being really beautiful to look at you know when did people stop caring about composition and framing and lighting and shadow and you know just i mean this is yeah 90 years old and it's absolutely astonishing to look at so yeah well worth checking out and some really great features on there some really good interviews and sort of archive stuff excellent so yeah check that out um i mean again a sort of cinephile staple i think you know going back to those those early films i mean that was something that i saw at, at at university and i haven't probably haven't seen it since but you know it's like uh the, the passion of joan of arc mm. you know the, these films that y- you kind of have to go back to say this is where like the the virtuosity of of filmmaking in terms of visual images like goes yeah. back to you know all the, and then you know go back even further if you're thinking about early early hollywood and all of that kind of stuff um, yeah, Dre is definitely one of my favorite filmmakers. I think it's yeah. certainly from that period. Just a, such a such a great such a great visual filmmaker. Mm, indeed, indeed. So yeah, let's uh, l- let's get into the main meat of the episode. So on to uh, Neil talking to the film critic Hannah Strong about her new book on Sofia Coppola. understand those five girls who after all these years we can't get out of our minds Welcome back to The Cinematologist, Hannah Strong. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about your brand new book on Sofia Coppola. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's good to be back. It's been a lovely three-year delay. And uh, yeah, I've written a book in that time. Indeed. Done something productive. <laughs> <laughs> well done for using that time productively. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, but no no shade to anyone who didn't, obviously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so you've written a book, uh, Sophia Coppola, Forever Young. Um, it is a lavish treatment for the filmmaker. And it was so nice to see an American female filmmaker given that lavish treatment, you know, considering the, so so often it's, you know, the same male filmmakers again, you know. So was it a hard pitch or was it, you know, was it something that, people thought yeah it's this is a good idea sort of straight from the bat 
Yeah, I think I was very fortunate because um, obviously publishing is a is a difficult world, and um, the Abrams. So, we, so at Little White Lies, we've worked with them before on three books, and uh, yeah, very much all uh, white American filmmakers, <laughs> male filmmakers. So, um, I was contacted in probably about. April or May of 2020 and asked if I would be interested in writing a book about Sophia Coppola and I believe that someone had read an essay I wrote for Little White Lies a few years ago about Sophia Coppola and thought that it would be a kind of good fit um so the intention was always to do a book about a female filmmaker and I think there was a kind of consensus that she was someone who there hadn't been um, a kind of big treatment of before. There are some great kind of more um, academic books out there about, but um, yeah, it felt like a nice kind of opportunity to uh, do something quite comprehensive and expansive about her work. So obviously I was uh, thrilled to be asked. So kind of um, went away and did my little pitch on how I wanted to approach the subject and that was accepted uh, so I think it was a relatively easy sell in terms of um, how the publishing world normally works so I certainly expect if I do another book it won't be quite as um, easy to, to get there um, but yeah it was uh, uh, Abrams were very on board for kind of um, doing this kind of bigger project and uh, fortunately Sophia was very on board as well she was uh, kind of really flattered that Abrams had decided to do the book um, and was very glad that it was a female writer as well because uh, I think strangely uh, throughout her career it has been I don't think this probably speaks to the kind of reception of her films as well there's been a lot of kind of male writers um, talking about her work who maybe kind of don't or haven't always understood the nuances. Um, there have been some supporters as well, which I talk about in the book. But, mm. um, but yeah, it was it was a kind of um, a dream project in terms of uh, being a film writer. There's not many things that I feel as qualified to talk about as uh, Sophia Coppola. <laughs> Did, did that make it daunting though because I think that obviously that what comes across in the book is that you're you are a fan and I don't, I don't mean that in a kind of in a derisory way at all but it's clear that you really love her work you know so so was it a bit daunting once it was like yeah go away and kind of spend your time writing this book kind of how you know how how are you going to kind of do her justice but also yeah kind of what what the work means to you yeah definitely yeah I um I think when you really care about something, it is always kind of um, difficult to feel like you're doing it justice. And I was very kind of scared, especially because um, the other books in the series are so wonderful. The, so the three that came before were written by Adam Neyman and he um, did such a wonderful job talking about the Coen brothers and then Paul Thomas Anderson and David Fincher. So um, I was kind of uh, stepping into some big shoes and obviously, you know, I, I love her films so much. I kind of wanted to do them justice, but also be sure that I was talking about them in a way that I think um, added to the kind of conversation and didn't just kind of regurgitate, um, you know, kind of 
positive elements and um, be able to write uh, quite kind of critically and you know analytically and, and talk about elements of the films that I maybe feel don't work as well or kind of do deserve a kind of more in-depth discussion. So it was definitely um, at the outset a very kind of it seems like a um, unthinkable task to kind of be be doing such a massive um undertaking but the more I got into it the easier it definitely felt and I think breaking it down into manageable kind of chapters um was very helpful as well so it didn't kind of feel like I was just um expected to kind of you know turn out this um coherent <laughs> 50,000 word book um from from scratch it was definitely um the, the structured nature of it was very helpful and I think that's something that probably is very different when writing uh fiction or um more kind of like dense uh mm. books because this obviously does have a lot of images in it and a lot of things that kind of break up the text so yeah I I did have to kind of think a lot about um long form writing which is something I've not done since I was a student uh which was quite challenging yeah yeah and it is comprehensive I mean you you touch on her music video work a short film work a commercial work I think which is is yeah really fascinating to see how yeah she's she's an auteur in the kind of the classic sense in terms of like there are linkages with 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 everything that she does which i think is i do want to sort of come back to in a bit but a little bit about the structure of it you know because it's you don't sort of tackle it chronologically you sort of group the films together um which i think is really helpful in terms of doing that work of opening her up to a much wider kind of critical understanding um you know but uh you know was was that something that you you had sort of as soon as you knew you were going to do the book or you wanted to do it, you were like, oh, this, or, or was that something you had to kind of work towards in terms of finding the right way to, to sort of create the book's structure? Yeah, I definitely knew that um, I didn't want to approach it in a chronological way, just because I think that it seemed very obvious to me and maybe not like the kind of most um, interesting way to think about her films because I think they are so thematically connected um it's not kind of like there's been um like i don't feel like she build she's building towards a kind of thesis in the way that some filmmakers do uh you know like kind of i think some someone like martin scorsese um you think about something like the irishman it feels like that's kind of the culmination of this career of, of um exploring kind of modern masculinity and faith and things whereas Sophia I think she kind of um ebbs and flows in kind of the things she's discussing so I knew that I kind of wanted to uh, tackle it in a more unconventional way and I knew as well from um reading Adam Lehman's books that it was helpful to kind of structure this this kind of project in a way that made sense to me as a writer um, and then kind of try and uh, make sure it makes sense as a reader as well. <laughs> um, and also because we knew the book was going to be so heavily um, uh, not illustrated, but so so heavily visual, um, we knew that we would have to kind of find a way of marrying the uh, narrative with the uh, visual aspects. So 
the themes I think when I initially was doing my pitch I rewatched all her films a couple of times and decided because she's only got seven feature films it would be easiest to kind of um group them loosely in a way I mean I say in the book as well like there are certain films I think could have fitted into multiple categories um but just kind of to make it more manageable as a reader if someone is going to sit down and kind of read it cover to cover which apparently people have been doing um I I was a bit sort of it is a bit on unwieldy because it's such a big book but um I wanted it to kind of yeah to, to be something that you could dip in and out of but also that if you decided you wanted to read it start to finish it would have a kind of three line um so yeah it was I was very fortunate obviously to have um a good team at Little White Lies who I could kind of bounce these ideas off and it was the, the nice thing about doing it as part of uh, the wider Little White Lies family is that I did have that kind of editorial support. I wasn't kind of going in totally blind. And Abrams are obviously a very kind of like film, you know, they're, they're very supportive of film and um, were really wonderful at kind of uh, giving their feedback and kind of what they thought made sense from a like a more commercial point of view, which obviously is something that uh, film writers are not particularly concerned with. So, um so yeah, it was uh, to me. It's a way that would be kind of like fun and interesting, um, but also maintains a kind of like you know some some sort of order to it. Mm. Yeah, no, I think it works really really well, and it is it's an easy read. And I mean, and, and it is a compliment. You know, it is it's very it's very enjoyable. You know, and it flows really well. You know, and it, it is it's it's easy to sit down and and lose lose a bit of time. If I didn't have an, a nine month old tugging on my leg every three minutes, I would have <laughs> I would have got further with it. Um, but one of the things that the structure does, which I really liked, was um, you know, Coppola is a filmmaker who is very important to girls and young women, and she's kind of you know she's been labelled as a filmmaker for that audience. I want to talk a bit about that in a bit, but but. Um, one of the things that the way you structure it does really beautifully is kind of remind of the other things that she's she's engaged with and talking about and really kind of in tune with and one of the things that sort of comes out of the read is that you know she's really astute about men <laughs> you know and i think she's kind of under underappreciated as a kind of chronicler of masculinity um you know and um, and i rewatched somewhere which i, I did want to talk about in a bit as well you know so what what were the things that sort of you discovered and that you sort of, you know, as, as, as you wrote it and were like, oh, actually, this is, you know, when you kind of put those groupings in, you know, was it, were there sort of surprises where you're like, actually, you know, there's there's more here than even I even thought of before I started writing the book? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think definitely, actually, like her, the way she writes and kind of captures men is something that I hadn't maybe considered because I think, like you say, she's thought of so much as a, as a filmmaker who is kind of preoccupied with womanhood and um that was really interesting to kind of think about um something like somewhere but then also on the rocks and lost in translation and kind of I mean I could have easily done like a you know one of the sections could have been called like men <laughs> but um what about the men Hannah come on <laughs> I know I know writing this book about this female auteur and then like what about the men in this film? Yeah. Should we unpack that? Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, the other, the kind of, I think the key thing was that she's a very funny filmmaker, which I think a lot of people maybe don't appreciate um, because she's not a kind of joke driven filmmaker. She doesn't really, she said before, she doesn't really like writing dialogue, which definitely comes across if you watch her films. They are some of the shortest screenplays you'll ever read. Um, I think that Somewhere was about 70 pages or something, which is a, a crazy short for a screenplay, uh, for a feature film. So it was really kind of um, rewarding to look at her films on that kind of like granular level and realise that, yeah, she does have this very dry sense of humour and a lot of it is kind of observational and in a kind of... Um, you know, a glance or uh, sort of something that's happening in the background. And um, I think that's something that I was quite keen to kind of convey within the book is that I, I do think she has quite a, a good sense of humour. And I think she's very astute, something like the bling ring. I think she's very kind of um, astute on privilege. And I think she's become more astute the older she's got. Because, you know, I think that certainly in her early career, there were a lot of charges against Sophia that she was this kind of um original nepotism baby who'd kind of come um come up from the Coppola dynasty and uh there was some kind of resentment I think uh that's lessened over time definitely but um yeah I think that certainly um so from kind of Marion to that onwards, it feels like she's quite aware of that and um, not quite like unapologetic, but I think she's um, conscious in her filmmaking. And I think she's very aware of the position she inhabits within Hollywood. Um, but then it was just a lot of kind of, uh, digging into performances and what makes them so special because I think that also yeah sometimes the performances in her films kind of beyond we talk about Kiss and Dunst a lot because um, obviously she you knows she's always does such amazing work but someone like Stephen Dorff who I think is amazing in somewhere and people don't really talk about that film since it won the uh, Venice the Golden Lion and there was all that kind of controversy about whether or not she deserved to win it Um uh, but then, yeah, obviously, like the the bling ring, I think that Emma Watson's performance in that kind of got memed to death at the time. Um, but it's actually, you know, a really kind of fun and engaging and kind of accurate portrayal if you've seen any of uh, Alexis Nea's in real life. Um, so, yeah, I was surprised at uh, how much I got out of kind of doing this on a, like, a... Uh, uh, a learning level just I felt like I was very fortunate to kind of have the time to get so invested in a way that I don't think journalists um, film journalists in particular really get that many opportunities because we were so kind of you know the turnover is so high for pieces there's often just not a lot of time to kind of totally immerse yourself um, and it was yeah it was it was really rewarding to find that I only kind of loved her more after writing a book. Um, I was worried that it would kind of kill my interest and kill my like love of these films. Um, you know, because once you take something you love and kind of try and like make a career, you know, it can sometimes lessen the the um, love you have for it. But but with this, I felt 
you know, and the more I talked to people who'd worked with her as well, I just felt like I was kind of um, even more appreciative mm. and even now still kind of love rewatching these films that I've seen countless times now because I feel like um, I, even now I'm still seeing kind of more things and, you know, kind of picking out different elements. And it's funny because like since I've started doing interviews about the book, there have been things that have occurred to me and I'm like, oh, if I was writing the book now, I probably would have mentioned that. <laughs> but, you know, maybe for a revised edition in the future or something. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, I think I think that's really interesting, that kind of richness that rewards repeat viewings, you know. I mean, so, yeah, for, before talking to you and sort of, and sort of reading the book, I wanted to rewatch Somewhere, which that and the bling ring when when they came out they just they were the only films of hers that just kind of left me really kind of cold you know i just like just didn't um you know and i loved marie antoinette when i saw it um um but they just sort of left so i thought i'll go back and rewatch somewhere because alex ross perry's a big fan of somewhere as well um mm. and um i know him i know him quite well and i'm, I'm always like well if, if he thinks it's worth and I'll, I'll you know so this gave me a chance to go back and i absolutely loved it this time around i just thought it was a really different film to to the one I'd seen, you know, and I think it, it very much indicates, particularly I think something like The Beguiled, you know, that kind of the 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 just the level of kind of visual richness that she, she gets in that film. It sort of anticipates, a, yeah, a more I don't want to say slower because it's uh, that's a really that's a rubbish word, but a, a more contemplative kind of you know approach to to the filmmaking. Um, yeah, yeah, and especially yeah. as a film about filmmaking, really, mm, which. For sure, um, for sure. She does touch on that, obviously, with um, Lost in Translation a little bit and um, kind of elements of it uh, later in the bling ring, though that's obviously more about celebrity. But, um, yeah, it's interesting uh, that I don't think somewhere, when you when people think about films that are about filmmaking and kind of uh, stardom, it, it tends to be one that I don't think people really um, mention as much, which... Maybe it's just because it's it's not a particularly popular film. I don't think I think I say in the book that it is my favourite and it, it mm. still is. Like it, yeah. it's definitely my favourite sphere film. But um yeah, I think it's just a really um astute observation of that kind of strange liminal space that actors occupy within the world where they're kind of um particularly now they're so available to the public in a lot of cases, but really you know shut off at the same time and I think that loneliness in that film is uh, something that I really obviously in the book I talk about you know I think that being one of the kind of things that she's best at exploring but um, I think it's something that makes the film feel very um, wide even though it's talking about an ex you know a kind of personal experience that many of us will never go through mm. um, but also just seeing Los Angeles kind of treated in this very melancholy way um, always appeals to me. I love films about, you know, these rarefied, starry kind of cities like, like New York, like Los Angeles, where um, you get a sense for that beauty and, you know, that kind of reverence that the filmmaker has, but there is this kind of underlying element of um, sadness to it all. And I, I think I say this in the book, but I do think it's actually kind of um one of her films with maybe the the kind of most hopeful like happy endings to mm. it as well um yeah i think it's it's funny because obviously like with lost in translation it's probably one of her films that got the the kind of biggest um like uh tangible 
critical award, mm. but um, yeah. it's not it's not really one that I see people kind of uh, giving the same kind of uh, reverence to now. And certainly, like, because I've obviously been programming screenings around the book, and it's not one that people people and cinemas have been particularly interested in showing, which mm. I I'm kind of always a little disappointed by because I think it's you know I think it's such a great film. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's um, you use the phrase um, creeping depression in the book, you know, and it, I think that kind of captures so much of it. And I think it's beautifully shot by Harris Avedis, you know, it just, I was rewatching, I was thinking like, you know, films just don't look as good anymore. And this is a film about, it's a very quiet film. It's a very, you know, it's a very simple film in terms of the narrative, but it just looks incredible, but, but not in a kind of glitzy way. It's so many films about actors and stars kind of so have this almost kind of bipolar approach where it's like it's the the pure glamour and the, the the crushing lows and like oh life is terrible or life is amazing and this sort of has this really interesting very realistic i think you know sort of medium median kind of approach which is actually life can just be a bit shit for shit. everyone <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah, I think that so many films lean into the kind of melodrama of Hollywood, uh, particularly you know thinking about it in kind of uh, Western filmmaking. It's obviously, you know, European uh, films about stardom, and I think um, films uh, certainly from what I know of like Asian filmmaking and Indian filmmaking about about their movie industries are very different. But um, purely from that kind of experience of Sofia Coppola of being someone who's grown up surrounded by this world um i think it does really kind of um highlight the the a lot of working in film is just waiting around <laughs> and kind of waiting for things yeah. to happen to you in a way and i think especially for actors um it's a strange sort of kind of passive role um in a lot of uh film making especially for someone like johnny marco who's kind of you know decently famous but not like a you know not kind of Brad Pitt figure where I imagine you know there's kind of people around them 24 7 mm. he's someone that is kind of um I think we see it best illustrated in the scene where he's having his mask uh, fitted for the yeah. film he's doing and there's all these people kind of around him like talking um kind of about him you know kind of like he's just like um a part of <laughs> part of the furniture and then they go off and leave him to it and there's this sense that he's just been kind of forgotten in this back room having this um all this like uh what's it called like it's like the mold isn't it it's like the prosthetic mold yeah i'm not sure yeah prosthetic mold like left on him and uh particularly in that scene i think the kind of use of sound because you can hear the kind of background noise of the phone ringing and uh kind of distant conversations and then you can just hear his breathing through this kind of um incredibly uncomfortable looking um uh, pastor of paris cast that he's got on his face and i think yeah it just really is such a astute um insight into that kind of claustrophobic space that they occupy where you know that it's so intense but at the same time kind of so lonely i think a lot of the time and um that's something that yeah personally obviously i i talk in the book about how i kind of relate to that but um i just think yeah it's a film that seems on the surface to be about a very niche experience but it folds out into so something that i think so many people 
can relate to and I think especially with with uh, just kind of coming out the other side of um the pandemic I think it's you know a great film about that kind of isolation as well that so many people have experienced so yeah I think it's definitely like uh technically one of her kind of outlying you know achievements I think it's a very sparse film in a way that people think of her as being very associated with opulence mm. and um this kind of maximalism but really um you know if people kind of have um watched a lot of her work they know that's not really the case I'd say it's only really in two of her films that we we kind of get that mm. sense um so it is it's also it's been very funny whilst writing the book to kind of think about the public perception of Sophia versus the kind of actual reality of her work. If you enjoy The Cinematologists and think the podcast is valuable to you in some way, please consider supporting us. You can do this by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or Good Pods. This really helps us get traction and visibility. Or you could share an episode on your social media. Any reviews or comments we get, we do tend to discuss on the main show. Or perhaps you could just tell a friend or a colleague about the show. Research suggests that the number one factor that aids podcast discoverability is personal recommendation. So if you have a friend or a colleague who you think would like the episode, please let them know about it. Also, for less than the price of a coffee, you could join our Patreon site. You will get access to our bonus podcasts and our monthly newsletter, in which we write an extended article and give a host of cultural recommendations. Corporate money is flooding into podcasting, and while there are brilliant shows being produced in all genres, there is a lot of formulaic content and celebrity chit-chat, which just sounds like mediocre radio. The uniqueness, authenticity, experimentation and passion that made podcasting something unique and different is being overwhelmed by corporate formalism and institutional gatekeeping. We are a fully independent, ad-free podcast. Goes back into making our product better. Thanks very much for your continued support. And now, back to the show. Yeah, and I, I I was going to come to this later, but I, I, I sort of you know it's a it's a good point there because I think that um, one of the things that sort of reading reading the book I was thinking about was like how her, how she's changed as a filmmaker. You know, there is a book, there is now a big glamorous lavish book about her, which is really beautiful, but also it feels like yeah that like her status has changed. You know, you sort of mentioned about the less lessening of the nepotism. Um, over time you know that just the body of work just sort of started to speak for itself but what's interesting is yeah that the the way she's regarded seems to have shifted as well you know she seems to be taken more seriously i'm thinking of like the the criticisms of the beguiled seemed like the kind of criticisms that male peers would would face you know um in terms of like representation and, and certain kind of you know political themes and stuff as opposed to something like marie antoinette which is kind of just written off you know um you know frivolous and like yeah kind of you know a, you know, so do you do you think that she's sort of she's worked herself into having a, a, a kind of, you know, uh, not an equal status, but certainly a kind of status that is less based on the kind of the assumptions that were made about her career when she started out? I think definitely the perception of her has shifted um, in some ways. And I think that 
she is kind of more respected now as a filmmaker and not dismissed as kind of this um someone who's kind of coasted on her family name um but yeah it's interesting there's a there's a piece i kind of reference in the beguiled chapter by ira madison um where he it, it was written around the time that the beguiled came out and it talks about the idea of representation and um what we ask of filmmakers and it's interesting because i think with sophia the a lot of kind of criticism around her work and not just the big R, but her other films is that she has quite a narrow purview and it's like oh she focuses on these middle-class white characters and um you know there's a lot of criticism around that and i think it's interesting because that's something that filmmakers have done for kind of decades and it doesn't seem like it's unique to Sophia. And yeah. in some ways, I think yeah. it's better that she kind of concentrates on the thing that she um, is good at and the worlds that she knows rather than trying to kind of tell stories that she doesn't have the kind of um, insight into or the kind of life experience to talk about. And to me, that's always something in filmmaking. Generally, I kind of go back and forth on because I think while there are so many um, stories out there that we're not hearing that we absolutely should get to hear and get to see on on screen, um, for me, it does come down to a case of like who gets to tell those stories. And I think it would be quite disingenuous for Sophia to suddenly start making films about things of which she has no kind of understanding. And it's interesting now that, she, yeah, she does kind of get the same criticisms that I think a lot of... Um, uh, not even like her peers, but kind of, you know, her father's peers get. I think um, it's it's good in a way that she's been treated, you know, as kind of a serious auteur and people kind of are having the same issues with something like um, the the beguile that they're having with some, you know, with a, not, not to rag on Scorsese, he's one of my favourites, but, um, you know, something like the Irishman, people are saying, oh, it's just a load of mm. white guys. And Wes Anderson um, seems like another one who gets, you know. Wes Anderson, exactly, yeah, who is definitely, yeah, definitely one of her, her friends and kind of peers. Um, so, I, yeah, I kind of go back and forth on this, and this is obviously something in the book that I do kind of talk about and I do address, because I don't think she's beyond reproach, and I do think that she has made kind of errors of judgment, I think particularly in The Beguiled and particularly in Lost in Translation. There are uh, ways where you can see that her um, her scope as a filmmaker is, you know, very white and very narrow, and she hasn't always kind of, I think, responded to the justify criticism in kind of the 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 most um understanding way um but i think there is kind of something to be said for uh writing what you know and kind of um telling the stories that you feel best place to tell and there is in my in my opinion there's kind of room out there for the sophia coppers of the world and for the and for you know hundreds of other filmmakers who tell different stories and just because something is very narrow in its seeming scope like the virgin suicides or like somewhere um doesn't mean that a lot of people can't kind of find that it relates uh resonates with them and that they can relate to it and obviously you know i've got so much of her, out of her work with whilst coming from an incredibly different background so um it's yeah it's 
something that I'm really glad to see is that the, sh- the criticism around her work has kind of shifted a little. Um, but it does still feel like kind of frustrating in a way to be like defending this filmmaker who I think has kind of time and time again proven that she, you know, she, she's got the kind of um, the skills. And she, I think when I've been talking to other people about the book and particularly women who are kind of my age, there is this feeling that um, it's almost like a kind of a camaraderie between us because we're all so used to kind of saying, yes, I love Sophia Coppola. Yes, I kind of know the issues around it. And um, yeah, it, it's been kind of rewarding in a way to, to feel less alone in kind of um, loving her and kind of uh, acknowledging the faults with her filmmaking and, you know, maybe with her, uh, storytelling whilst also acknowledging that um you know there's a lot of positive mm. things about it as well and obviously she's i think have been so influential on other filmmakers and other creatives um that's kind of in my eyes always a good thing you know um she has kind of i talk about this again in the book um her impact on like popular culture and fashion mm. is kind of indelible and um that i think um is very uh it's very hard to do now it's very hard to kind of break through in that way there's so many films being made now so many kind of you know we're in this never-ending content boom and a lot of it feels very samey particularly kind of streaming stuff so to have this filmmaker who is very um you know her films are kind of all instantly recognizable and kind of to have just have your own like distinct tone of voice and distinct style is so is so valuable. I kind of um, I'm very glad she's managed to kind of hang on mm, to that. For sure, yeah. No, it's interesting, isn't it? Because like there are a lot of there are a lot of children of you know Hollywood directors or, or actors who have benefited from the proximity, shall we say? But they have not had that kind of cultural impact that that, that her work has had both in cinema, but also beyond, you know, the, the kind of legion. And they have careers and they make work, but, you know, they, they don't have that kind of legacy of, like you say, kind of really sort of influencing, you know, other, other sort of visual, visual media and visual arts fields. Um, I wonder, you sort of say in the book about, you know, writing it from the position of the target audience, you know um who is the target audience and also like look again the way the book sort of structures and puts these works next to each other you do get the sense that that target audience has probably been on a journey it reminded me of harry potter fans in a less you know in the sense that you she's making films that are kind of following a certain certain trajectory of of of, of womanhood um that you can almost sort of track track where you are as an audience next to it is that is that is that does that feel like you know kind of something that that is a valid insight or is it you know what else is kind of going on for those for those Sofia Coppola fans yeah I think that definitely um the whole kind of reason Sofia started making films was uh that she felt she wasn't seeing the kind of film she wanted to make out there and uh with the virgin suicides there's a quote in the book where she says she wanted to make something artful for teenage girls that she she didn't feel existed and um that i think is a very kind of um overt statement of intent about who she started making films for and you know that was obviously uh 20 years ago now so her target audience at the time have 
you know, grown up considerably since then. And I was just a little bit too young to kind of get the Virgin of Suicides on release. So I was coming to it about seven or eight years later. Um, so in some ways, I'm not the target audience. I'm a little bit too young for that. But um, I think that her films are so much about growing up and kind of the trials and tribulations of that, regardless of whether or not you're a teenager or you're an adult who's still kind of going through that process. So I think in some ways, like adolescence doesn't really ever end. Um, so for me, it's um, her films are, are for teenagers, but also are for kind of anyone who feels that that sort of um, that state of flux and you know that can be that can come across in many ways I think On the Rocks is a really astute kind of way of observing that um, that feeling of kind of um, not knowing what you're doing with your life or kind of not being sure of yourself and you're sure sure of the kind of decisions you made that doesn't really go away when you become an adult or when you get the things that you've been told that you should want like a family or a career or a partner so you know I think that she's just very good at kind of um navigating the like the unglamorous parts of life and the kind of things that um we all kind of more or less have to go through um but they're usually depicted in a more kind of I think bombastic way and I think that her films are often about the kind of um less glamorous um elements of life but they're presented in such a kind of beautiful way that um it feels kind of um more compelling or even like you know that that kind of the idea of what she's actually talking about can get lost because people get so wrapped up in the kind of aesthetics so um yeah i mean i, I definitely think um Obviously, I got so much out of her films as a teenager, but definitely as the more I've got older, the more I've kind of realized that um, they're not at all just, you know, mm. teenagers and um, shouldn't be kind of, I think that um, her being kind of pigeonholed as a filmmaker for women is very kind mm. of reductive. And um, it's great now that I think so many people feel more confident in saying that they love her films. Cause I think certainly when, um, she only maybe got a few films out, there was this perception of who she makes films for, or, uh, you know, who enjoys her films, which I think has, has shifted now. And she has, what well, was we were just saying, I think she's got kind of a similar sort of respect to, um, the Wes Anderson's of the world. Um, and like any great kind of filmmaker, her work doesn't work for everyone. Um, but I think for some reason, when it's someone like David Lynch or you know, David Cronenberg or John Carpenter, well, we're we're more willing to be to kind of say that that's okay. Mm, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, yeah. when it's a genre filmmaker, it's like, oh well, of of course, you know, it's not going to be for everyone. But yeah, with, with Sophia, for some reason, it's almost like. Um, there's a kind of reluctance to accept that not everyone is going to like it. Um, but yeah, sorry. What what was the other part of that question? I completely no, no. Forgot. I think that was it. Really, I was just, it was the other part was the Harry Potter analogy, which was a bit. Which was a bit... oh yeah, <laughs> um... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously she's yeah. I think she's she's far less um, 
irritating oh, God, than, yeah. than J.K. Rowling. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely that sense of, I think, uh, with Harry Potter, I was, uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely came of age reading Harry Potter and kind of uh, very much enjoying those books. And I think the older I got, the more I was kind of, personally, I became kind of less interested mm. in that world. But you do, I think you become, with a little distance, you're able to kind of see maybe um, the kind of flaws with these things, any kind of big piece of very influential um, pop culture. I mean, even something like Lord of the Rings, which again, I came of the age, I came of age when the films were sort of massive. Um, and I think you're able to kind of um, dissect your relationship a little bit when you get older. And you can realise that you can still deeply care about something and deeply love something but that doesn't mean you can't also kind of uh, look at it critically and that's something I was very keen with the book is to make sure that I felt like I was doing Sophia the kind of justice and the respect of talking about her films seriously and talking about them with a kind of critical eye and engaging with other people's opinions about them because I think that's the kind of best way you can celebrate a filmmaker is by having the uh, respect to kind of you know take their work seriously and not just um pander to kind of how they might want to be perceived and i was very fortunate that sophia she you know she was very supportive but she never at all kind of wanted to uh see anything or get sign off on anything you know she was very 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 hands-off and um it's been interesting a lot of people have asked like oh well, well did you speak to her you know have you met her and uh, is she interviewed for the book and I'm always like no no like no I've never met her um never spoken to her <laughs> um but I think in some ways that made it a lot easier because I didn't feel like I was having to kind of um worry about you know what she might think of it or what or kind of upsetting her um not that I say anything in the book that I think is particularly controversial but um yeah, I think that's that was important to me as well. It's kind of making sure that I was interrogating this thing that I, I really do love and care about, um, but doing so in a way that I felt was respectful and um, was um, engaging with the wider world of criticism and appreciating that, you know, things like Lost in Translation, things like The Beguiled, the criticism surrounding Sphere Copper um, and the choices that she's made in some of her work Mm. is valid a lot of the time and you know i think especially lost in translation that film was made it'll be 20 years next year so there are elements here that haven't aged particularly well and i think that is also like very important to kind of recognize and to not kind of give someone a pass just because you like yeah, their work no, for sure but i think what's interesting about her as a filmmaker as well is that i think that kind of that awareness and sort of re re reflexivity, reflectivity, you know, she, she feels like quite a reflective filmmaker. You know, those the works as they go on seem to be addressing some of her, some of, you know, some of the just her past and some of the other, you know, the, you know, she's trying to evolve as a filmmaker. She's trying to kind of grow, I think. And that's, you know, those I mean, I love the Bogard and I've lost in translation and I can see the criticisms. Yeah. But I also think that there's. They're just they're they're really they're really great movies, you know, as well. Um uh you mentioned sort of yeah, kind of, you know, having that sort of same status as her peers. You also say that there's a coppola shot. So what is the coppola shot? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean this is um again, I think it's something that really uh speaks to kind of her her auteur um, you know, vision. And 
it's something that even as far back as um, her short film, Lick the Star, which came out the year before the version Suicides, um, it's this shot that we see in every single one of her films where there will be a character um, looking out of a window, usually in a moving vehicle. And you... I, th- I think sometimes you see them from the inside of the car, sometimes from the outside of the car. But to me, it's this um, kind of summation of the idea of like isolation and yearning that I think in every single one of her films are, are kind of about that mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in, in one way or another. And um, yeah, it was fun to kind of pick out something that I think is very tangible within her work um, that I could, you know, just say like, there it is, there it is, there it is across across this kind of body of work. Um, but also to kind of have a common thread, because even though her films, um, you know, do take place over kind of centuries and countries and um, uh, about very different subject matter, um, I think they're all kind of about a similar sort of feeling or a similar group of feelings, I should say. And... Yeah, that was like, I'm not the most, because I didn't study filmmaking at university. I've never done, I've, I think I've done one film course in my lifetime. So I've never had the kind of academic language. And that's always made me feel very insecure <laughs> about about my writing, because I, I read so many wonderful writers who can talk about, um, well, this is what um, X means in the context of this filmmaker. And they can talk about like, Oh yes, this angle or this uh, sh- this like width of shot, this aspect ratio, and that's just not. It's like um, complex mathematics to me. Like I, I, a lot of the time, it just it just goes completely over my head. So it was nice to kind of feel like over the course of writing the book, I felt like I was kind of understanding film more <laughs> and um, kind of understanding why a filmmaker like Sofia Coppola does the things she does. Does the things she does and. Um, speaking to people like Philip Lesord and uh, Sarah Flack, her editor, was so helpful because it really gave me that kind of insight into uh, the technical elements. Because I think she is as well. She's a very technically um, based filmmaker Mm -hmm. and she has very specific ideas about the way she wants to shoot things and the way uh, she wants things to look. And uh, particularly, I mean, in the interview with Philip, it's it's very evident that uh, she's quite particular and we always think of people like Scorsese people like um Christopher Nolan as being the kind of like the film you know oh we've got to shoot it on film it's got to you know it could be this aspect ratio but I think she's she's definitely someone who um also kind of fits into that uh idea of really wanting to preserve like the sanctity of filmmaking in a way Mm. and I think because she's also got this real background in fine art and a real appreciation for fine art that she thinks in images a lot and that's why there's so it's so easy i think for um stills from her films to kind of do the rounds on uh instagram or on twitter or whatever because she's such a um a visually driven filmmaker and um i think the kind of coppola shot is a real kind of i think for her maybe it's like a nice like little signature uh in a way but it's also yeah really um easy kind of shorthand for the sort of um wider themes that branch across this whole like body of work yeah 
And one of the things as well, reading the book that it made me think of is that it feels autobiographical, you know, so much it's so much of, you know, her background and her early story is, is, yeah, sort of hanging around, traveling, you know, sort of on film sets or between places, you know, like there's a sense of, yeah, that looking out and waiting and sort of looking around. And I think that's where a lot of her observational sort of acumen comes from but it, it almost felt like oh actually yeah you could you know and I, but you know it's interesting what you say because i think that that um that 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 sort of you know that sort of anxiety about writing is always there but you know your the book is you know is, is passionate and honest um and really insightful you know and i think it does the it does the job of good writing in that in that sense and also you know yeah and also like you you know i, I hate reading stuff where it's someone's you know, someone's written it from a, a point of view that they've, that's not shifted. You know, you, you write to know, and it, I think that's that's it's clear in the book that this is someone, yeah, sort of doing the work of discovery on the page, which is, yeah, you know, again, so so much what a lot of her films feel like. You know, they feel kind of like they're alive and engaged um, in really interesting ways. Um, you mentioned sort of interviewing some of the people. Yeah, the, 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 towards the end of the book, you've got these great interviews with with some of her collaborator, uh, collaborators. Uh, including a fantastic interview with uh, Kirsten Dunst, which is just, she's just brilliant <laughs> in that interview, like such a good interview with her. Um, where she's, I really where caught she's... her at the good time because it was just, um, it was just before she went on the kind of press trail for um, Power of the Dog. So I think it was a, a great yeah. time. She wasn't exhausted yet. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> but she, she expresses her, um, her cinephile bona fides by being a big fan of Daisy's. Um, the Vera Chitlova film but what was really interesting about about her answers but also your question was or the, 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 the conversation sorry was you know was sort of evident in the rest of the book in how you reach out beyond the films you know so each each section has these inspirations so you tie her work to the wider sort of you know to wider cinema history um which is just i think really you know it's just really lovely and 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 really really nice and in that interview sort of talking about how I think for both of you, really, like the Virgin Suicides is a gateway to Picnic at Hanging, Hanging Rock, you know, um, which just made me think like that that she's a filmmaker that feels like a cinephile's filmmaker. Um, and then it made me think about what is cinephilia in this moment. But it, for, for me, it's, it, it's what it's always been, which is curiosity. You know, like you watch something um, and it's a gateway to to other things, you know, and I thought it was. Really, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I ha I completely agree with that. And I think that um, one of the most rewarding elements of working on the book was discovering other films <laughs> and the, the films that inspired Sophia and even um, just films that she loves. She's someone that talks really passionately about cinema and about the cinema she grew up watching. And I mean, obviously, when you come from that family, of course, I think you're bound to grow up loving cinema. And it's interesting because obviously, um, you know, she's her cousin is Nicolas Cage, and he did this amazing Reddit interview um, a few weeks ago where he was talking about the films that he loves. And um, it, I don't come from that world at all. My family aren't really into cinema, so I was very jealous in a way. I was thinking, oh, it must be so nice to kind of grow up in this environment where that kind of um, film curiosity is like celebrated and um, there's a real kind of reverence for the art of uh, cinema. Um, but that, yeah, I mean, doing the kind of inspiration sections for me, it was so tough in a way because there's so many films that I wanted to talk about that um, I just didn't 
didn't have room to talk about because you know it, it was only like a supplementary bit of um the book but things like Amadeus and uh things like Stanley Kubrick's Lolita and uh Leaving Las Vegas you know all these kind of amazing works of cinema that I think um it's very obvious when you kind of watch her films knowing those kind of inspirations you can see the kind of blue line and you can see her um or it's almost like an interpolation sometimes um within the Sofia Coppola world of these great artists yeah. that she loves and it feels very um very kind of there's obvi- there's obviously a reverence for these filmmakers but it's also very playful I mean something like the, the pink wigs in Marie Antoinette is kind of a nod to Amadeus and yeah I I that curiosity of hers as a filmmaker and as a person, I think, is something that I, again, like really connect to because the reason I love films, I think, is that kind of um, sating my kind of curiosity mm. about the world. And um, yeah, also to just to to realize that she is a filmmaker who watches so many films. And I think sometimes with filmmakers, uh, particularly now more than ever, I, there's sometimes a sense that filmmakers aren't watching as many films as they should. <laughs> and um, I don't know if it's like a time thing or what, but it's, you know, I think it also feeds into what I was saying earlier about having a very distinct visual identity as a filmmaker. And I think that only comes about from learning as much as you can about film. And I think it's a similar thing with writing. Um, the best writers I know are the ones that kind of read the most and are constantly writing you only kind of get better about it through doing it and um I think that's you know it's probably why as someone who before I even got into films I loved writing and I think that's why I feel there's such a kind of um deep connection between the two uh because they both like you say they have this this element of curiosity and um a desire to kind of understand and acquire knowledge (laughs) and I think that yeah that's one of the things I love about watching her films is that I feel like I come out with like 10 other films that I want to go and watch and even um watching her behind the scenes films which a lot of them were shot by her mother on the sets um there's an amazing one for somewhere where Stephen Dorff's like got this big stack of DVDs in his hotel room at the Chateau Marmont and one of them's Paper Moon and there's a few others. And he's talking about um, Sophia giving him this homework, which was just a big stack of DVDs and just saying like, go away and watch these and like, tell me kind of what you think. And uh, I think that's, yeah, that's such a lovely, um, a lovely thing as a filmmaker and to kind of share that knowledge with your, with your cast and with your collaborators and kind of um, be someone who really values um, keeping the kind of love of film alive and not pretending that you're the first person to ever make a movie is something that um, I think is really valuable. And I think, yeah, her films are films for people that just generally love movies and want to kind of discover more cinema yeah and it's nice to see that thread in the book you know because i think you like you say it it it, it puts her it puts her in the same sphere as those lauded male filmmakers like scorsese and tarantino you know always told we're all told how what they show you know and it was it's nice to see that that, you know it's just nice to see again because you know from a nerd point of view it's nice to see what 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 she's engaging with um and hopefully the book will will lead more people to to those great movies which are really broad range um i hope so yeah. i really hope so <laughs> so before we wrap up 
um, the bling ring. You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to try, <laughs> try. and pitch me on rewatching. <laughs> Is that one that you're not? Uh... It's the only one. Yeah, it's the only one now. I haven't gone back to it since I saw it. Um, but yeah, I'm just you know. I so I also when the movie came out, I was kind of diametrically opposed to it. I thought it was just this very vapid like celebration of something that I thought was totally not worth my time and I think because it came out round about the time that I think there was huge kind of reality television boom and um I was I was a god how old was I I was about 19 I think uh when the film came out and I was very much like oh no the Kardashians and whatnot not not my thing at all not not kind of interested in that uh so I wasn't particularly keen to revisit it for doing the book um it was definitely, I think, out of all her films, it was the one that I was like, oh, I don't really like it. And somehow through the process of doing the book, I, I actually think it's really great. And, and you know, kind of maybe one of her... her um, again, she's only got seven films. It's hard to say, oh, it's one of her best when there's only seven of them to begin with. But no, I do think it's actually a film which has like a lot to say about um, an era which is very, you know, it's not that long from where we are now, but also feels very... Um, different to where we are now it was this kind of this age of like um insane cultural consumption but also the birth of like kind of social media and the things that happen in the bling ring are only possible because of the advent of social media and um that to me is fascinating i think it captures a really interesting moment in time in a way that not many films have been able to do i'd maybe like put it alongside uncut gems and in, in terms of like a, being able to pinpoint a very specific moment in time um which i think a lot of filmmakers haven't really kind of tried to make work about that that um le- what is it the, the it's not like late noughties i guess before we got into the kind of uh the meat of the 2010s it's like you know that 2012 2011 uh, 2013 sweet spot so not only do i think it's a very good like representation of that strange political time we were living in um i think it's also like a a very astute film about um the kind of flip side of teendom that we see in something like virgin suicides or um my internet where in the bling ring it's this group of very kind of outwardly obnoxious and kind of unlikable teenagers um but there's this like sort of simmering um undercurrent of like what okay well why are these teenagers the way they are and what has kind of made them become these quite obnoxious you know kind of hooligans like running around los angeles uh, partying with celebrities and then robbing them by the cover of darkness. And I think it speaks to that kind of uh, feeling as a young person and as an adult often of, of wanting very desperately to belong. And um, particularly, I think, as someone who moved to a big city at 18 and and felt that way for a very, very long time, um, that element of kind of wanting your life to like be kind of more extraordinary than it is. And I think it's, yeah, it's fascinating to see someone like Sophia Coppola, who is such a celebrity and has been such a celebrity, you know, since she was born, basically um, making this film about this kind of uh, very strange, like middle-class 
teenage impulse to kind of want to be famous. And it's something that I think we've gradually kind of shifted away from that in society. And there's more of a kind of critical um, perception of celebrities now. And I think it's, you know, rightly so. I think it's uh, there's more balance now. But certainly, God, in the age that it's talking about, there was this kind of bizarre reverence, I think, um, that maybe people are kind of more um, thoughtful about now. But, yeah, I think it's such a, a strange and and funny film. And it must have been so hard for Sofia Coppola to make a film which is so ugly, because it is, like, it's a deeply <laughs> ugly film in many ways yeah. and very gaudy. And there's a wonderful... Um, on the DVD, there's a wonderful, like, video of them, of uh, Sofia and the team talking about making the film and, and talking about... Um, that inspiration being this kind of I'll talk about this in the book a little bit, but this the the inspiration was this picture they had of a sort of peach coloured, like washed out mansion in Calabasas, and it's just so diametrically opposed from the kind of beauty and the celebration of um uniqueness that I think is in Sophia Coppola's for films. So yeah, it's I, I think it's it's again, it's not for everyone, but I think it is a very um a really interesting like kind of um relic and obviously i mean the kind of the big film that i think it uh ties really well with is gus van sant's to die for which i think is another amazing kind mm. of portrait of 90 celebrity um that also kind of like you know has these true crime elements um and features this amazing nicole kidman performance so you know i think it's uh it's yeah it's a, it, that in itself makes a really cracking double bill but i think yeah it's, it's one of her more challenging films and i definitely get why it was kind of not liked <laughs> on on release um but yeah i i think it's just such fun and it's yeah it really does beneath that kind of a gaudy um jarring surface of the the valley girl accents it's it's really smart about like celebrity and about um the kind of isolation of, of being a teenager and uh, that impulse to kind of um, make yourself seem uh, more interesting in, in any way that I think teenagers kind of, um, for, for better or worse, all are guilty of at some point. Uh, so, yeah, I hope I hope that's like some sort of like sell to kind of reconsidering it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Um You've done well there. I'll <laughs> definitely give it. An, I'll definitely give it another um, another go. Um, but yeah, thank you, thank you for the book. I think it's absolutely wonderful. Congratulations. Um, um, yeah, I think people will get so much out of it uh, as 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 with her work, which I think you know you've you've done a really beautiful job of of kind of engaging with and and celebrating, but also kind of reckoning with in a in a critical sense. So yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And yeah, I shall see you in a couple of weeks in Cannes. Yes. Yeah. Very excited. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today, Hannah. Bye. Thanks so much to Hannah for her time and yeah, for for kind of engaging with, with the questions. Really appreciated it. And yeah, hope to catch catch up with, with her in Cannes in a week or so. But Dario, what did you make of the chat and uh, the conversation that came well, out? Well, nicely slipped in there. I've just piqued my jealousy. You know, my, <laughs> I'm sorry, but <laughs> sorry, you guys but... are going to Cannes. My, my girlfriend is going to meet her, a friend of hers. Sorry, this is a big aside, but she's going to meet a friend of hers in Paris 
And this friend of hers has got a bit of cash and has just paid for tickets to the French Open final. Oh, man. The French Open tennis final. And I'm like, there's people doing stuff that I just would kill for at the moment. And I'm just gutted about it. Sorry, but Anyway, sorry. I can hear the world's tiniest violin playing right now. Anyway, um, yeah. I don't really want to add too much because it's you know it's a it's an in-depth interview that I don't think needs you know <laughs> me to 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 chime in having not read the book let's put it that way I mean we can talk about somewhere which I know you've seen and I I watched last night which is going to be the the chat in the bonus the one thing that I did want to sort of just maybe mention or or maybe talk to you about and you know reflecting on what Hannah had said and out of one of the questions that you asked related to this idea of the criticism of Sofia Coppola and her subject matter and you know the idea that she's making middle class movies or even you know whatever that whatever that category is in America (laughs) you know that the the Hollywood rich the Hollywood elite or you know celebrity culture and you know these are lives that are um you know she's approaching this notion of alienation from a very privileged position and the and you know it's almost like the idea that that what have these people got to complain about really yeah. you know and does she therefore have a ceiling in terms of you know or a narrowness maybe maybe in terms of her potential of what she can do as a filmmaker yeah and you know hannah's answer to that which i've you know i've heard before is you know well here is somebody who's writing what they know and you know, somebody who doesn't perhaps or is self-reflexive enough not to, um, you know, go off and make movies about, I don't know, the the working class in the Rust Belt or something in America because it's, it doesn't chime with her experience. And, and you know, and, and, and Hannah, I think, well, she wasn't sort of overt about this. I think there is an ambivalence there in her answer. And I think that it's a problem to just always say that filmmakers should be making films about essentially aligning with who they are as people, you know, mm. aligning with, with their identity. And it does come from this position, I think we see in culture right now, that you can't speak for somebody else. Who are you to speak for somebody else? And I always find this a really problematic line because where do you, where, where do you, where do you draw the line? You know, it, it's like, it, you know, can a white person make a movie about a black experience? You know, you could argue there's a lot of people say, no, well, you can't do that because... You don't represent that, and B, you don't have any life experience of that. But then, you know, you take that further. Can can uh, a man make a, an adequate film that has a, a a female protagonist in it? You know, and or, or a, you know, you, you could apply that to class as well. You know, as 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 you sort of mentioned within um, within Coppola's work, and I think it's just really problematic. And I see that sense of, you know, can look at so many filmmakers who have made great movies and they're outsiders. And often that outsider eye gives an insight that, that the insider doesn't have. And I just think that that sort of political starting point is, is an, it leads to a narrow understanding of what experience is. And I think it's one of the problems and one of the d- directions of, that culture has gone in that I think is, is quite simplistic and basic and also mm-hmm. lacking in a in a, in a nuance nuanced understanding of what art should strive to do at its very best and i guess it's 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 to do with how you do it and the context of of doing it mm. yeah no i think that's a really interesting point um 
and it, I think it's interesting to look at Coppola's trajectory and see, you know, she'd made somewhere, I think, after Marie Antoinette, you know, which was heavily criticised, sure. you know, which is a stretch away from the kinds of early works, you know, tonally, thematically, I think, you know, it's very much more overtly feminist than than the others, you know. I think there's a really interesting, and I wrote about this, about Marie Antoinette, you know, and its portrayal of the role of women in society, I think, is really interesting. But it does it in such a such a kind of quote-unquote postmodern way it kind of really just riled people up um and then she reverted back to something quite safe with somewhere and i think after the beguiled which wasn't anywhere near as poorly received it was very well received but it did receive criticism for its kind of handling of race um or non-handling of race really um in that kind of context and then she goes back to make on the rocks you know which feels like a much safer kind of screwball you know, in, in, in a world that is is much, much closer to her own experience. Um, so it's interesting, I think, that, you know, there seems to be an awareness of, like, maybe the time she's trying, people are, you know, not necessarily getting... Or, or mm. I think, you know, yeah, she's she's maybe not not doing that... Element. Not, doing, not going far enough, maybe. Not going far yeah, enough. Yeah. You know, you mentioned, you know, it would be nice to see her do a body horror. Um, and something like that would be fascinating. Like, how would... And I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's like, if you like a filmmaker and you're interested in how they see the world or how they tell stories, you kind of want to see them push, or at least we do, you know? Mm. It's not really a good time for that. But I think that it would be really interesting to, rather than just be like, oh, a Sofia Coppola Marvel movie, yeah, I'd love to see a a Sofia Coppola folk horror or a Sofia Coppola sci-fi movie. What would that look like, you know, Mm. um, in a way that Claire Denis done that in the last couple of years? You know, what does it mean when these filmmakers do stretch into those genre spaces yeah and and again it's is it because like Sophia Coppola does have a, a a sort of blind spot when it comes to the the use of quote-unquote others non-americans to make the american characters feel uncomfortable and i think it is one of the criticisms that have been leveled at her that maybe then makes her pull back oh i better go back to the the safety of what I know, because I know that that was a thing about Lost in Translation and the whole otherness of Japanese culture. And there's a little bit of it in somewhere as well with with Italian culture, which is amazing because obviously, she, you know, she she is related to that. Um, mm. But it's used in a way that just, you know, to make Stephen Dorff in that moment in, in somewhere, which, you know, we'll talk about more in the, in the bonus, to make him feel like weirded out that all this Italianness is happening around him. And it's, there maybe is a sort of, you know a limitation there and but or but that's the that's the thing i think that the the problem is that sofia coppola is probably not given the flexibility or the leeway that male filmmakers are for their limitations <laughs> do you know what i mean for it's sure. like all filmmakers yeah. have have limitations you know everybody has limitations in every line of work that they're in but it's like oh here mm. are your limitations you know let's really focus on them and hammer them whereas I think, I mean, maybe maybe things are changing now where, you know, I don't think male filmmakers anymore can can kind of just easily get away with problematic portrayals or uses of culture in, 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 in unsavory ways. And But obviously, historically, they have, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah it's, it, it's an interesting one that maybe I agree with some of your conversation about her getting very specifically hammered because everybody knows whose daughter she is and that is I just think that is true you know yeah and I think what is 
what is kind of testament to her as a filmmaker is that she keeps going, <laughs> you know. And I know she has the position to do so, but I think that, you know, it's not a given that, you know, and mm. and also that, you know, she's still willing to to try and make interesting work. You know, we sort, I sort of mentioned in there that there are other kind of nepotistic recipients, you know, whose work is nowhere near as interesting. It's nowhere near as visually bold or cinematic or even yeah, yeah. trying to engage with, with other things. And I think that's what's interesting about The Beguiled, which I particularly like, you know, is like it does fall down possibly on its kind of, but but it's it's kind of, it's portrayal of, a, you know, a kind of group of women under, you know, incredible stress and this kind of erotic power that comes into that space is absolutely brilliantly handled. You know, it's a re- it, it's really mm. interesting in of itself. And I do think that, yeah, she she's she is making interesting work. Um, On the Rocks was throwaway but enjoyable. You know, I thought, but mm. but but you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I think she's definitely earned the right to be a filmmaker that's discussed in in kind of complicated terms. Um, and I hope that 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 she continues to be so. And I think that I think yeah, one of the other things that Hannah's book does really well is is remind that you know again, which I think is is kind of interesting. Is like she may be the daughter of someone very very famous in film a part of a kind of family dynasty but the work that she's done on her own terms in terms of her cinephilia is it's kind of undeniable yeah 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 you yeah. know like it, she's she might have been handed opportunities but i don't think she's wasted those opportunities and i think she's in, she's tried to forge her own identity as a filmmaker in a really interesting way which so many male you know sort of sons of have not done yeah you know um which is the kind of twice as hard work that you might have to do if you're a woman but but you know, I think that it's a rich, it's a rich body of work um, uh, that that is her own. You know, I don't think I don't think you could say, oh, you know, she, they don't, they don't feel like Francis Ford Coppola films. They feel yeah, like Sofia no, Coppola. That's very films. true. That's very true. So yes, great interview. Thank you very much again, Hannah, for coming on. Um, we're now going to go over to the uh, bonus episode where we're going to discuss in quite a bit of detail, maybe the the film somewhere. Because I think we've got an interesting take in terms of Neil's... Because we've watched it again for the second time, both of us, and had almost sort of reverse reactions in a way, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Um, so we'll we'll uh, we'll see you over there. Please come and uh, join us if you're a Patreon member. Um, if you're not, think about signing up. It's only a, a couple of quid. If you enjoy the, the Cinematologist's uh, podcast, you think um, the work that we do is, is valuable to you, please consider helping us out with our, our running costs. Um, but Neil, uh, great to talk to you as always. You too. Yeah, thanks. Lovely chat as per. And we shall see you on the next episode. This has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>